Welcome to Honey, I Just Got Raptured, a Left Behind Reread podcast. I'm Aaron, your host, and we're going to keep this project going until I get bored of it, or I can sell out to podcast advertisers, uh, whichever happens first. Uh, firstly, I'd like to say I'm very disappointed in myself that I've succumbed to the inevitability of every mid-twenties guy having a podcast, but you know, hopefully I'm getting it out of my system early, and uh, this will be just another blip along my particular life journey. We're going to ride this wave until it peters out, so let's, uh, let's see where this goes. So for a bit of background, uh, I was raised Catholic. I'm not really religious anymore, but when I was in the sixth grade, I stumbled upon a copy of a book titled Armageddon in my parents' bookshelf in our basement, Uh, and the cover had these, like, cool-looking, like, black horses, um, and and the art was really pretty, and when I was in sixth grade, I read a lot more than I do now, and I I picked it up. Uh, And as it turns out, Armageddon is the 11th of 16 novels in the Left Behind series, which is a massive franchise authored by Protestant minister Tim LaHaye and novelist Jerry B. Jenkins. Uh, These stories are based on a Christian ideology known as premillennial dispensationalism, which subscribes to the notion that Jesus Christ will return to the earth and establish a thousand-year reign after a dark period of time that's going to last roughly seven years, uh, known as the Tribulation or the End Times. So over the course of sixth grade, I read all 13 of these novels plus the three prequel novels, uh, and there's also uh, literally 40 novellas that have to do with teens during the tribulation read some of those uh and i want to revisit them now because uh i just i just find uh rapture theology super interesting and i hope that you know a couple of you twitter followers will join me these books go to some incredible places and they're genuinely entertaining but i must make clear i do not endorse or recommend you follow this ideology or financially support those people who do trust me these guys have already made a ton of money I also hope that my discussion of religious themes is not offensive. I will genuinely try not to be too mean about anyone's sincerely held beliefs, but you should be warned that I am going to be pretty solidly opposed to the kind of Christianity espoused in these books. Um, So, you know, if you're looking for just a kind of a weird dive into this strange franchise and these ideas, uh, this is the podcast for you. And if you are a premillennial dispensationalist, you should, like, sorry, you should probably turn it off now. That said, I hope this will be fun. Current plan for this podcast structure will be a summary of the chapters I read, a quick overview of my thoughts, and an examination of one aspect of premillennial dispensationalism. So uh, let's get started with chapter one. Chapter one opens with Rayford Steele's mind was on a woman he had never touched, um, which is kind of a wild hook and uh pretty good summary of the mindset of sexuality around this whole franchise uh so captain rayford Steele is fantasizing about his senior flight attendant hattie durham rayford's inner monologue explains that since his wife irene has started becoming more religious he's feeling less attracted to her and more open to exploring a relationship with his flight attendant they used to attend a church uh, rayford and his wife where nobody pried or asked questions or or really cared beyond a surface level but since Irene has joined this smaller congregation, Rayford notes that people will straight up ask him what God is doing in his life, and his response is, uh, blessing my socks off, which I kind of enjoy. That's sort of the, the archetypical response. Um, it's sort of like whenever somebody asks, how's it going? And you're like, it's going, or living the dream. And I, I just imagine this like 40-year-old pilot just like, blessing my socks off, guys. So 
Ray believes that his wife is becoming sort of a fanatic, and he admits that he's consciously aware of this is, you know, kind of his excuse to consider cheating on her. In this, literally the first page, it's revealed that Ray is terrible. Uh, he has a flashback to where he made out with someone 12 years ago at a drunken Christmas party when his wife was nine months pregnant with his son, Ray Jr. So, I mean, right away, they want us to be 100% certain that Ray sucks. But he delves in more deeply. He talks about how our green has become obsessed with this concept of the rapture, which is a biblical notion that Jesus will return for his followers and take them bodily into heaven. Uh... Raymond recalls an argument that they had about it where Irene was very concerned um, that Ray wasn't, you know, as into this whole religion thing as, as she was. And Ray's just not very interested. He says he doesn't mind religion necessarily, um, but he thinks his wife is taking it a bit far. Uh, he remembers all the other fads she's been into. He hopes this fades just as quickly. At one point, he does mention... Let me look it up. I think this is kind of an interesting look into how Lehay and Jenkins build this dichotomy of believers and non-believers, uh, Ray being a non-believer in, in this first book. Irene says to him, I only believe what the Bible says. And Ray says, uh, good for you. And then his monologue goes in, or his inner monologue says, uh, in a way he envied her confidence, but in truth he wrote it off to be her being a more emotional, more feelings-oriented person. He didn't want to articulate it, but the fact was he was brighter, yes, more intelligent. Uh, he believed in rules, systems, laws, patterns, things you could see and feel and hear and touch. So, I mean, right away, we're, we're if you've spent any time on the internet arguing with dudes who consider themselves rationalists or, you know, consider themselves to be more logical than others, right? You sort of see this dichotomy uh, immediately, this split between uh, somebody who is a thinker and, and believes in science and then somebody who is faithful and, and puts their trust in, in the Lord we get a perspective change to a passenger on this airplane, a man named Cameron Buck Williams, who is currently working on a new story from his first class seat. Uh, Buck earned his nickname during his time for the magazine The Global Weekly, which is apparently very prestigious. He is the youngest senior reporter on staff. Uh, he's only 30 years old. While he's on this plane, he has, a, he has a flashback he remembers a year and a half ago where he met with Chaim Rosenzweig, the elderly winner of the Nobel Prize in Chemistry. Now, Hayam is the uh, inventor of a fertilizer that permitted crops to grow from desert sand. And it doesn't explicitly state it, but um, I'm pretty sure Hayam is uh, an Israeli citizen because uh, his formula is used to, uh, quote, cover every inch of ground of the Holy Land with high-quality food, crops, basically turning the, the desert sands into a big agriculture field. And I think this is such a strange concept. I don't really know that Israel's ability to grow food was ever, you know, like a, a huge concern. I mean, certainly it would be much more uh, convenient to grow food in the desert if you could. But I, I don't know that agriculture is the export Israel needs to just get the jump on the rest of the world. Like if, if Israel was somehow like just selling off huge soybean crops, they would, they would become the, the strongest country. But anyway, the country flourishes unemployment is apparently reduced to virtually zero i guess because all the israelis turn into farmers and crop pickers uh it should also be mentioned uh at least in this first part bit they do not mention palestine at all which is uh another interesting look into the author's uh, ideology no palestinians are mentioned israel is is one unified country uh so good good going tim lay and jerry b jenkins
Anyway, Israel became one of the wealthiest countries in the world essentially overnight, and being so rich, they made peace with their neighbors, which is another weird geopolitical quirk I don't understand. Does like does Iran hate Israel because they aren't rich enough? They just haven't paid them enough money? That, that seems strange to me, but we're, we're going to get into that here in a second. Haim is placed under the protection of the Israeli government because they're worried that Israel's enemies will track him down and torture the formula out of him. Russia in particular is mentioned. They're worried this, this magic formula could be altered to permit plant growth from snow. And I mean, again, I don't know enough about agriculture to say whether or not that's a stupid thing to worry about, but it, it, just, it just strikes me as so strange. Uh, another key detail is that the fall of the USSR is mentioned, which suggests that the Left Behind series takes place, you know, in, in the mid-90s. And this book was published in 1995, so that, that makes sense. Another key world-building detail mentioned during this flashback is that Russia and Europe have switched their currencies over to the Mark, M-A-R-K, and then Africa, Asia, and the Middle East are all converted to yen, uh, and North and South America still use the dollar. Uh, talks are brewing about creating a single global currency, and this, this whole bit is just so mind-boggling to me because, because Africa, Asia, and the Middle East are just suddenly completely on board with switching over to Japanese currency. Just like, there are so many people, like the vast majority of the planet are included in those three regions, even in 1995. It is astonishing to me that they're just like, you know what? Yeah, okay, we'll, we'll all use yen now. That's fine. China, I'm sure, was super cool with letting the Japanese just take over. I'm sure they were <laughs> extremely excited about that. Anyway, so Russia is super jealous that Israel is rich, and what they do is that they try to wipe out the country in one unified assault, literally outnumbering the Israelis at 100 to 1. They invade, they send basically all their, their warplanes, a ton of ICBMs, including nuclear weapons, the goal is to destroy Israel entirely. This this massive invasion of Israel by Russia happens on the same day a year and a half ago where Buck is in Israel to interview Hayim. Uh, he remembers cowering under a desk in this military installation. He's just ready to die because he knows like there's no way we're all gonna we're all gonna perish here. He realizes after like, a couple moments that like there's explosions and and everything is really hot, but like he's not dead. So he's like, all right, well I guess I'm gonna investigate. I'll I'll see what's gonna kill me. He, he opens the door to this installation, and he walks into this bright white inferno. The heat from the battle is radiating all across this country. The sky is burning. But miraculously, there's no damage to like anything except for like the thousands of Russian planes that are just falling out of the sky. Then a hailstorm happens, and then the earth shakes beneath Buck's feet, and then it's also raining, I guess. But like the big thing is that there's a big, big firestorm in the sky that, that seems to be consuming... Uh, all these Russian planes. And then as he's at this military installation, he he hears all these military people talking and they're like, we haven't been able to get our planes off the ground yet. We haven't, we don't know how this is happening. But literally not a single Israeli is hurt or, or killed in this, in this fight. And then basically the Russian air force is annihilated entirely. It is later revealed that Israel has been uh, targeted by an alliance of Middle Eastern nations, primarily Ethiopia and Libya, in alliance with Russia. I mean, I guess I can allow Libya, but I don't, I don't know that Ethiopia is considered Middle Eastern. That's that's such a strange thing to me. And I mean, I understand that in biblical times, maybe Ethiopia was a major influencer in the region, but in '95, I don't see it. Um, please, just please leave Ethiopia out of this. They didn't ask for this. 
But Buck cites this day uh, as the day he first started to believe in God. Not Jesus, he makes the distinction that he does not believe in Jesus, but he does report reading Ezekiel 38 and 39 to discover that a similar event uh, as this weird war, this weird invasion, was predicted in scripture, and we're going to dig into that in the uh, in the second half of the podcast. Uh, perspective switches back to Ray, who leaves the cockpit in the hands of his co-pilot Christopher, and he goes to see- seek out Hattie Durham. But as soon as he like leaves the cockpit, Hattie grabs him and pulls him into the hall, and he starts. He's like, "Oh, okay, this is going well." But then he realizes that she's freaking out. She's like, "Passengers are missing," and she's just terrified. Uh, and Ray's like, you need to you need to calm down, you need to pull yourself together, I'm going to go check it out. He does check it out, and he realizes that she's 100% right. Uh, other people in the plane, they haven't turned the lights on yet, but other people on the, on the plane are are also very concerned about this, <laughs> understandably. he There's just people, like, holding their loved one's clothes. Uh, so Ray, like, goes back um, into what I assume is, like, that area where all the flight attendants, like, prepare meals and have all their cards, and he slaps himself in the face in order to wake up from this bad dream, and I know that if I saw the pilot of my flight just punch himself in the face, I would, I would ask for a refund. I would, I would not be psyched to be on board that particular aircraft. Hattie and Ray try to pull themselves together. They start making a list of people who are missing, but Ray pretty quickly comes to the conclusion that the rapture that Irene was was worried about has indeed occurred. Chapter two is a little bit shorter, at least in interesting details. So we start with this old woman sitting next to Buck Williams, the the journalist, and she she's like, "Hey, can you help look for my husband? He apparently got naked and walked off because his clothes are just like sitting in a pile." on the chair and buck notices that even his hearing aid is on the seat so he gets up to go investigate and he learns that basically everyone on the plane is looking for someone and he he tries to think of a reason why a ton of people would just suddenly disappear and i think it's it's kind of adorable that he's worried about like teleportation lasers because he just has no idea what's happening there's also a drunk guy sitting in buck's aisle who buck is like hey man maybe you should wake up and the buck and the the drunk guy's just like you know what i don't i don't care leave me leave me alone man let me sleep and later on when they land that drunk guy is in for like kind of a kind of a rough surprise so raymond learns from hattie that they're missing over 100 people so ray hails a concord which is you know an, another kind of nice reminder about the 90s that concords were still in play it reports a similar incident and that it's been happening all over the world they say that their passengers are missing too and people all across the planet are, have just disappeared. The Concorde pilot says he was worried at first that the missing passengers might have spontaneously combusted, which is a wild thing to say. Like, my man, you think they just blew up? C- come on. He Anyway, Ray learns that they're going to have to turn back to Chicago, and basically every other airport is full. Like, they can't land in New York. They were, I think they were flying to, to London, and they they get turned back. They're about halfway across across the Atlantic right now, and they have to turn back. But like yeah, they can't they can't land in in New York or any other airports because they're all full and dealing with this catastrophe on their own. The plane comes into satellite range of the U.S. and Ray is able to get radio confirmation that all around the globe everything has gone very very wrong. Plane crashes and car crashes have killed thousands, which is like another kind of kind of a bummer thing that I don't like about the the concept of the rapture. Like I'll probably get into more detail on that if I do this podcast again. But basically, like 
the rapture is sort of like a chance for the, the last people on earth to repent and, and become good Christians. But like, except for these people that are instantly killed in planes and car crashes, they, they don't have any chance. They're, they're donezo, which is a bummer. Uh, another interesting detail is that uh, they have to bring in reserve cab drivers because so many have disappeared from the O'Hare cab corral and they just left their cars running. That That's kind of an interesting detail, I think. This whole this whole series, I don't I don't think the writing is particularly beautiful or necessarily interesting even, but it does convey the chaos that a sudden mass disappearance would wreak upon you know the world's emergency systems and infrastructure, and and I like I like the way that it imagines that. Uh, so Buck, who is apparently an electronics whiz, he figures out how to get his internet connection by splicing uh, into the the phone on the plane. And he plugs it into his laptop, um, and I don't, I don't know. Maybe phones were different in the '90s. Maybe this is like a weird satellite-connected phone. But I, I, I don't know. That's super weird to me. That's just such a strange relic of the '90s, and I kind of love it. Uh, so Hattie, the the flight attendant, catches him tampering with his phone, and she gets mad because he's like tampering with like airline property. Like you're not supposed to do that. But he promises that he'll try to get information out to her family if she's cool with it. And she says, "Yeah, if you could, if you could try to get a hold of my family." And my understanding is basically that he he's like sending emails to to people. He emails his his, uh, his work office and says, "Like, hey, if you can try to get a hold of this woman's family, that would be cool." And he also, I guess, downloads his his emails from this work connection. When they're getting close to Chicago, Ray is like, "All right, I'm gonna tell everybody on the plane about these disappearances. They're happening all across the world. They might have happened to your friends and family back home." he you know he, he's straightforward with them and he uh, somewhat abruptly in my opinion you know he doesn't hold anything back he they note that like if if like an a- engine had had gone down like he wouldn't have told them as much information as he, he did here which you know i kind of appreciate so good for you ray uh he does reflect on the fact that he is pretty happy he was flying uh since the chaos on the ground that has overtaken just the whole world has not affected him at all it's so dangerous on the ground right now he's kind of happy that he was in the air to avoid all that that chaos um and it's it's kind of kind of nice that he was not among the disappeared because he probably saved the the lives of everybody remaining on that airplane once buck downloads these emails he's unable to raise anyone on the ground for hattie unfortunately and and she checks in with him and she's like hey were you able to get a hold of anyone he's like no i'm sorry but then she starts getting very upset and he, he tries to understand why she's why she's panicking so much and she reveals to him that not only was it just like adults but teenagers literally every child and baby on the airplane they're just gone uh and that that has really spooked her as the chapter closes ray prepares to land the plane among the nightmare that is o'hare uh as opposed to the nightmare that o'hare is just on a day-to-day basis he thinks of his wife and two kids and he is wondering if they too haven't been caught up in this phenomenon so my thoughts on this chapter i i think it's a pretty good first chapter like i like the characterization of ray they they make him instantly unlikable buck does have kind of a flashback that's heavy on world building but i'm i'm personally a sucker for lore dumps it doesn't really bother me i like the way they describe the chaos of the rapture just the sheer logistical difficulty of getting all these abandoned machines and vehicles out of the roads and airports just trying to get some semblance of normalcy back together I think it's very strange that if somebody, like, if I was on a plane and somebody next to me disappeared, I wouldn't just instantly start screaming at the top of my lungs. Uh, and I, in my original draft of this, I had thought that it was weird that nobody actually saw the moment they disappeared. But it later on in 
in the next chapters it'll it'll get into that because they do actually have video evidence of people vanishing which is uh so scary <laughs> anyway reading the first few pages reminds me why i love this series as a kid it's just unabashedly dramatic it doesn't really worry about how realistic the plot is and it just adds sci-fi elements for you know whenever they are convenient to the story the series only escalates from here and i'm really excited to keep reading <laughs> So for our last bit, um, I need a segment title for this, but right now it's, I'm just going to call it like extra reading. We're going to deal with the war between Israel and Russia, or as it's known on some corners of the internet as uh, the War of Gog and Magog. So from Ezekiel 38 uh, versus, this looks like 5 and 6, Persia, Cush, and Put with them, all of them with shield and helmet, Gomer and all his hordes, the house of Togarmah, in the uttermost parts of the north, and all his hordes, even many peoples with thee. Uh, and in 39 it says, uh, And thou, son of man, prophesy against Gog, and say, Thus saith the Lord Jehovah, Behold, I am against thee, O Gog, a prince of Rosh, Meshech, and Tubal. And I will turn thee about, and will lead thee on, and will cause thee to come up from the uttermost parts of the north, and I will bring thee upon the mountains of Israel. And I will smite thy bow out of thy left hand, and will cause thine arrows to fall out of thy right hand. Thou shalt fall upon the mountains of Israel, thou, and all thy hordes, and the peoples that are with thee. I will give thee unto the ravenous birds of every sort, and to the beasts of the field to be devoured. Thou shalt fall upon the open field, for I have spoken it, saith the Lord Jehovah. And I will send a fire on Magog, and on them that dwell securely in the isles, and they shall know that I am Jehovah. And they that dwell in the cities of Israel shall go forth, and shall make fires of the weapons and burn them, both the shields and the bucklers and the bows and the arrows, and the handstaves and the spears, and they shall make fires out of them seven years, so that they shall take no wood out of the field, neither cut down any of the, the forests, for they shall make fires of the weapons, and they shall plunder those that plundered them, and rob those that robbed them, saith the Lord Jehovah." So those are specific verses that are included in the narrative and this uh, in this first chapter when they describe this Russian invasion. So, for instance, when they talk about making fires of the weapons and burn them, burning them, um, and take, not taking any wood out of the field, Lehi and Jenkins talk about how after this aftermath of this battle, all the the destroyed warships and and tanks and stuff, all this stuff is. I guess harvested by the Israeli military, and it is used to fuel them. They they gather all the fuel and the ingredient not ingredients materials from these downed warplanes, and they use that to fuel their country for the next seven years. So that's very specific. Also, when it talks about smiting the bow out of the left hand and causing the arrows to fall out of thy right hand, the way it's understood is that like these these missiles are just like getting caught in in atmosphere. They don't even. Uh, break through the clouds. Uh, this firestorm like protects all of all of Israel, every literally every city in Israel, and that that is sort of the interpretation that Lehi and Jenkins have gone with here. So I did, um, I did go to a website that I do not recommend you visit called uh, trackingbibleprophecy.org, uh, and it does give a surprisingly comprehensive understanding of this Ezekiel thirty-eight and thirty-nine Gog Magog war. Uh, there's a little map that I'm looking at right now. Uh, that that correlates these these old names into countries that that currently exist. So um, Magog 
is is understood as Russia, uh, and Gog is understood as is not a country, but it's the leader, the title of the leader of Russia, not necessarily a king, but like perhaps a prime minister or a prince or something. So that's why they they call it the Gog and Magog War, because it's Gog leading Magog. So we've got Persia, which is obviously Iran. Um, we have former Soviet states such as Meshek and Tubal, which I I don't I don't know how to respond to that. Uh, Eastern Europe is is labeled Gomer. Uh, Turkey is labeled as Togar Maya. I guess Turkey's going to get involved. Sudan and Libya are Kush and Put, respectively. Uh, I get this person doesn't doesn't specify Ethiopia, but um, I mean they do they do have sort of an idea of all the nations that are going to unite against Israel and and attack them. I I read into this this interpretation of scripture and this author believes that Israel in the future may get involved in a conflict uh, in Iran, which will draw Russia into its cause. Uh, this author cites the Russian Georgia, um, the invasion of Georgia by Russia in 2008 and the Ukrainian invasion in 2014 as a possible precursor to uh, this Gog Magog war, um, as well as, you know, general Russian aggression leading Europe to use Israel as its main supplier of natural gas as opposed to Russia, which might lead Russia to, I guess, invade Israel because they are exporting a lot of natural gas. The author makes a distinction between the Gog Magog War and the Battle of Armageddon because Gog Magog will only have the specific nations listed, whereas Armageddon will involve literally every other nation on Earth uniting against Israel. And uh, in the Left Behind book titled Armageddon, that's exactly what happens, and it's great. <laughs> um, and I hope to God I can keep this long enough to read Armageddon because that it pops off in such a major way. In the book, they mention an earthquake that, that shakes the ground beneath Buck's feet, um, but in this this author interprets it as an earthquake that everybody on Earth will be able to feel. It'll, it'll be so violent and powerful. Uh, as far as where Gog Magog ends up on the Tribulation timeline, it's predicted by this author that it'll happen around seven years before the start of the new millennium after the rapture, which is not the case within this Left Behind book. And then there's a quote from trackingbibleprophecy.org which i'm gonna read uh also the gog and magog war could pave the way for the harlot religion babylon the great to rise this religious harlot system will rule during the first half of daniel's 70th week before the 10 kings destroy her and hand over their power to the antichrist uh babylon the great will fill the void left after the gog and magog war and effectively wipe out radical islam and atheism i don't i don't know what any of that means but i I have to I have to do more research about the Babylon the Great Harlot religion. I'm extremely excited about that. So anyway, I can't wait to keep reading this book series. It is so wild and full of uh, hyperbole. I love it. Again, if you are going to read these series, I cannot, I do not endorse you purchasing any of the book or any of the spinoffs. If you want to read it, maybe check them out at your library. That's where I read most of the ones when I was in sixth grade or listen to some audio recordings on YouTube. Uh, but, but for real, this is a bad ideology. Don't, don't give them money. If you do want more of this podcast, go ahead and rate and review it on iTunes or Overcast or wherever I end up putting it. And the most important thing is tell your friends about it, because I'm always, always on my grind trying to bump up my Twitter follower count. And if 
for some reason, you you know Tim Lanning and Jennifer Cheek from the uh, Greetings Adventurers podcast. Uh, get this into their hands because they definitely inspired it. Um, this has been Honey, I Just Got Raptured, a podcast of Earth's Last Days. <laughs> <laughs>